Well, there's normally one in every family, and in our family, it is me. For I am the guardian of the TV remote. And since living in America, I treat it, uh, I take it very seriously, for I see it as my job to protect my family, uh, not only from inappropriate US TV shows and movies, uh, but also from just very, very bad ones. And so in my British household, there is a safe and, and steady drip of baking shows from England and crime dramas from Scotland and stand-up comedians from Wales. But out of a deep love for my American wife, uh, this past Monday evening, I let my iron light grip on our TV remote go, and since it was Christmas, I picked out a seasonal movie for Sarah and I. Uh, the children went upstairs to bed, and we settled down to Netflix's movie, A Christmas Prince, The Royal Wedding. Indeed, let me tell you that title again, so that I may lovingly fulfill my shepherding role here and warn you about the implausible levels of bad acting and plot lines and over-the-top smolts, a Christmas prince, the royal wedding. Uh, moreover, let me continue to warn you by, by telling you that the reason it has a double title is because, quite horrifyingly, this movie has both a prequel and a sequel. <laughs> there is apparently a prequel where the female protagonist, Amber, uh, the American journalist first falls in love with Richard, the pin prince of Aldovia, uh, which is not even a real European country. And then a sequel, The Royal Baby, of which I dare not imagine uh, the heights of slapstick comedy and the depths of sappiness. Needless to say, Monday evening was rather painful. For within minutes, Sarah fell asleep on my shoulder and with the TV remote left agonizingly out of reach, I was pinned to the sofa and forced to watch the whole 93 minutes of basically the revolutionary war in a bridal shop. An American bride-to-be highlighting all the evils of European pomp and tradition and circumstance, and finally her desire for an independent ceremony, winning the day and her bridegroom's heart, as seen at the end of the movie when Amber walks down the aisle in a pair of sparkly gold Converse trainers. Let's just say it was 93 minutes, which I sense could only be redeemed this week by using it as my opening sermon illustration. <laughs> for though it may be an abysmal movie, it is at least an apt one for today's passage. Because not only are we heading into Christmas, and, and so uh, to Old Testament promises, fulfilled in the arrival of Christ, the Prince, the, the, the Prince of Peace, Isaiah 9, but primarily because the backdrop to this psalm is one of a royal wedding. For I trust you notice that as Haley read it to us, that there are three royal wedding characters. There's obviously the, the Christmas Prince, the groom, spoken of in the first half, and there's obviously the, the Christmas Princess, the bride, spoken of in the second half, but the other key character is seen right at the beginning, and that's the psalmist himself. Well, just like the opening scene of The Christmas Prince, which starts with an excitable and romantic blog post all about the wedding of Amber to the great King Richard. So we meet in the introduction to Psalm 45, one whose job it was to announce the royal wedding, to enthuse about its coming, to blog about it to the whole world, 
And so at the start of our text, can you see there, we meet a kind of poet laureate, a man who pens a love song, an 8th century BC singer-songwriter who kind of composes a Christmas number one ballad, a psalm written for the king of God's people on his very wedding day. Now, we don't know which Israelite king uh, this was written for. Some suggest it's King Solomon. But whichever Israelite king this song was first penned for, that the writer is clearly very excited about his king. For verse 1, his tongue is like a pen of a ready scribe, and he suffers no writer's block. And on the contrary, look at the opening line. My heart overflows with a pleasing theme as I address verses to the king. His heart overflows for his king. And that word, overflows, is very appropriate because just like a a Christmas romantic comedy, the psalmist's lines here are often over the top. They point way beyond human marriage, for they clearly go way beyond any earthly wedding, albeit an earthly royal wedding. In fact, you can almost imagine as the psalmist's love song comes out and becomes a, a Christmas number one hit, and then the people of Israel listening to it on the radio and then, and then turning to one another and saying, he can't be talking about that royal wedding on Saturday, can he? Can't really be talking about our King Solomon, can he? Accordingly, friends, let me give you the punchline from the very outset. This royal wedding psalm, as both Christian and Jewish scholars agree, points to the wedding of God's promised king, the Christ. And so for New Testament Christians, for those who believe God's king, the Christ has come. That God's prince of peace came to us at Christmas time, 2,000 years ago. This psalm, although originally written for an ancient royal wedding in Jerusalem, actually pictures the Christ's wedding in the New Jerusalem. Amazingly, this psalm pictures the ultimate wedding of King Jesus to us, his people, this church that we read of earlier in Ephesians 5. And so walking through this psalm in order with that that Christological fulfillment in mind, what I want us to do very simply this morning is to observe two things. Firstly, I want us to see how the bridegroom Christ is described. And then secondly, I want us to see how the bride, how we are directed. And so firstly, How does the psalmist describe the Christ, the bridegroom of the church? Well, the first description we're to note is that he is the lover we all desire. He is the lover we all desire. Well, can you see from verse 2, the bridegroom's very desirable. Verse 2, he is the most handsome of the sons of men. Literally in the Hebrew, that the word lovely is doubled. It almost reads, you are the loveliest lovely. And so this lover's face and and, and eyes and hair are lovely. But not only is the lover lovely in sight, but they are surrounded by by lovely stuff and lovely smells and lovely sounds and and even lovely siblings. Verse 3, the groom wears a sword and is seen in splendor. And then look at verse 8, his wedding suit is, is fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassia. He wears no cheap cologne. And also in verse 8, people play upbeat songs on on string instruments. This guy even has a great music collection. 
A cool rock band made up of his musical mates follows him around and plays. In verse 9, all his siblings look lovely too. Ladies of honor, most likely his sisters, are, are draped in gold. The lover is lovely from every angle. The lover is desirable from every one of the five senses. And he's clearly been blessed by God immensely. But why has the royal groom been so blessed by God? Well, look at verse 2 because it tells us, God has blessed you forever because grace is poured upon your lips. Above all the desirable sights and sounds and smells are the lovely lips of the royal groom who is gracious in word. What is most attractive is, is what comes out of his mouth. And we see that in earthly marriage, don't we? A spouse might have great beauty, or great brain power, a great wardrobe, or a great musk, or a great music collection. But what we most desire in earthly marriage, certainly the longer we are in it, is grace. What we most desire is a lover who is lovely to us when we do not merit loveliness because we are unlovely. One whose gracious lips say, I love you, when we haven't taken a shower in days, when it looks like we've gotten dressed in the dark, or when our music collection is the soundtrack to the Christmas Prince music trilogy. Above all, we all desire the gracious lips that say, I forgive you, when we've been so unbelievably unlovely to them and do not deserve their pity or their pardon. And friends, though we may seek this ultimate gracious lover in earthly marriage or in a deep friendship, though we may seek this gracious lover at this time of year when we, when we really need grace to get us through all our frustrations, in truth, the only one who can fulfill those innate desires is the lovely Lord Jesus in his gracious words to us. Indeed, that is the one aspect of the loveliness of the blessed heavenly groom that could not be veiled on earth. Certain aspects of his Psalm 45 credentials were veiled on earth. For in his first coming, Jesus wore no sword on his side. He told Peter to, to put his sword away. And Jesus wore no sweet-smelling wedding suit. He was born in a stable and stayed single. Jesus was not surrounded by guitarists and ladies in gold. He hung out with sinners and tax collectors. But the loveliness of Jesus' lips, which poured out grace upon grace upon grace, could not be veiled. And it was through, it was through his gracious words that people fell in love with King Jesus as they recognized him as the lover they most desired. In fact, one of the most striking examples of this is seen in Luke's gospel in chapter 4. Jesus is in Nazareth in his hometown. He stands up and he proclaims that, that he is the Christ. He stands up and he says that, that I am the Christmas prince of Isaiah. I'm the promised royal bridegroom of Psalm 45. And many scoff and they say, is this not Joseph's son? He's no son of a king. He's the son of a carpenter. He carries not a sword but a screwdriver. He smells not of cassia but of sweat. He had no beauty that we should desire him, Isaiah 53. But, Luke says, that some in Nazareth, at least initially, desired him. And why? Luke 4.22, many scoffed, 
But others marveled at the gracious words that were coming out of his mouth. People fell in love with Jesus. Not when they saw what he looked like. Not when the disciples showed them a picture. They fell in love when they listened to his words of grace. And so friends, it's Christmas time. If you want to find the lover you most desire, or or if you as a Christian quite honestly need to fall in love again with your first love, then do not seek out sensuality. Do not seek the Renaissance paintings of the nativity. Do not seek the smells of Christmas incense. Do not seek the sounds of angelic children's choirs, but seek most the gracious words of Jesus. For that is what people who actually saw him fell in love with in the first century. One day we shall see our groom in the fullness of Psalm 45. But until then, we are to be wooed by his words. And so if you want to fall in love, read the Bible. Listen to the gracious words of Jesus in the Gospels. To the promiscuous woman of John 4, whoever drinks of the water I give will never be thirsty. Or or the bleeding woman of Mark 5. Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Or the paralytic boy of Matthew 9. Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. Or the greedy Zacchaeus. Today salvation has come to this man's house. To the evil thief on the cross. Truly today you will be with me in paradise. And to the terribly proud Peter. Peter, do you love me? And then feed my sheep. Seek the real Jesus again this Advent season. Listen. Listen to how he interacts with unlovely people like you and me. And find if you're not yet a Christian. Or rediscover if you're in a spiritual low. The lover we all desire. Stop searching for a, Christian, a Christmas romance. And find the, find the great bridegroom of your soul. Who comes with grace upon his lips. Who loves you despite all your unloveliness, who forgives you despite all your ugly ignorance of him, who speaks words of comfort to you despite your sin and your suffering. To the women here this morning, let your soul be stirred up again by scripture. May the reading of the gracious words of Jesus to the unlovely be that which you prioritize amid all the hustle and bustle of Christmas. To the men here this morning, don't let the illustration of the wedding here Make you slide into into cynicism or concerns about being soppy. Christ is greater than any Netflix Christmas prince. If you can put up pictures on your office desk of sportsmen that you love and desire to be, surely you can pin up in your heart the great Lord Jesus Christ, the one who you are called to desire above all, for he has been so gracious to a fool like you. He's the lover we all desire. But more than that, as we see this description of the coming Christ painted by the wedding day psalmist, we must also see that that God's king, that that, that great bridegroom, is not merely the, the lover we all desire, but he is the leader that we all need. Point two, sub point two. He is the leader we all need. In verse three, if you look down there, the royal bridegroom stands with a sword. But in verse four, you'll see that the royal bridegroom gets on his horse and he rides out victoriously. For verse five, his arrows are sharp in the hearts of his enemies and people fall under him. And so can you see 
That this perfect groom is not merely a man who murmurs sweet nothings, a wimpy poet who wields a gracious pen, a guy who's good at romantic letter writing but doesn't have the power to do anything. No, this bridegroom is more than just a, a magazine model. He is both marine and monarch. He is the leader we need, for he is formidable. But lest we think that his political slogan is, is his greatness, lest we think that we need a macho man, look at the banner in which he rides out. Verse four and full, in your majesty, ride out victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. Next year we have a presidential election. Be nice to have a leader who really loved the truth of God's word, who was very obviously humble, who called right, right, and evil, evil. We need to pray hard for this country next year. But more importantly, beyond any temporary earthly government, wonderfully we realize that this royal groom is a king who rules his heavenly kingdom in truth. A prince who governs his people with a meekness and humility. A leader who powerfully defeats all our evil enemies. And in the Gospels again, this is true in Christ. For we read of a king who pierced stubborn hearts with God's law. And having been hit with the arrows of truth, they, they fell at his feet. And we read of a prince who rode out on a humble donkey towards Jerusalem. Who rode out as the hymn goes, in lowly pomp to die who rode out towards a cross for his church, his lover's sake, to die for their sin and all that keeps them from God. And we read of a leader who defeated the greatest enemies, sin and death, who rose victorious from the very grave and who accordingly leads all those who trust in his work out of death and into the very throne room of heaven itself. And because our own hearts are those that are stubborn, we need those sharp arrows of his truth. Because you and I reject God's good and right laws and deserve to be trodden down like the enemies of God because we are destined to die and face God's judgment and have the only hope of falling underneath his pardon. He is the leader we all need. For only this lover who rode out and died for us can lead us past the enemy of our own sin. Only this bridegroom who rose for us can lead us through the last enemy, death. And astonishingly, wonderfully, brilliantly, friends, that's the message of Christianity. That that is the spouse that, that, that God has given you to lead you through the enemy of your sin and your death. And if you're not a Christian, that is the divine marriage proposal that is still offered to you today. Not sure if you expected that this morning, but right now Christ gets down on bended knee and he asks you for your hand in marriage, that he may love you in the way that you most desire, but also that he may lead you in the way that you most need. Unbeliever, please accept this offer before it's too late. For as the Princeton professor, William Plummer, commenting on verse five, wrote, no arrows pierce so deep as his arrows of truth. They produce the most pungent convictions, striking men right in the heart. 
And so there are two ways in which the wicked enemies fall before Christ. One is to ask and receive mercy from the groom. The other is to sink underneath the weight of his wrath. If men despise his grace, they will be crushed by his power. Unbeliever, will you accept that wonderful engagement today? And to my fellow believer here, to those of us who are amazingly engaged to Christ, who find victory over sin and death through him alone, will you not again rejoice at your groom given by God? It's so easy to forget him, isn't it? In this time, take him for granted. But what beautiful pictures are painted here for us to meditate on and to kindle our love this week. King Jesus is the love we all desire. His lips are full of grace for us. And King Jesus is the leader we all need. He rode humbly to death for our sin and now stands victorious over sin. And finally, sub-point three, third description. He's the Lord. We all may know God. He is the Lord. We all may know God. As I mentioned from verse 1, at many points, the psalmist's heart overflows. His heart overflows such that this his song is over the top for a 8th century BC Israelite king. For it is as if that the writer glimpses something beyond the earthly, beyond the marriage of, of God's king in Israel and to the ultimate wedding of God's king in heaven. And that is a particularly apparent in, in verse 6, isn't it? For can you see how the psalmist describes the groom here? Indeed, just imagine, just imagine being the, the, the wedding day photographer and picture that the wedding stage, as I read verse 6, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you. So in the wedding day photo at the church altar, before the bride walks down the aisle, there is the king on his throne, and oddly he is called God, and then God, standing behind the throne of God, then anoints God, which is a picture of God's presence being with him. And so as you snap the picture on your camera, and you take a look at the back, you see that there are three divine persons in the photo. The groom, the divine one who sits on the throne, and also the divine one who stands behind the throne, and then also the divine one who's poured out on the head of the one who sits on the throne. And so what is no doubt a great mystery to those in Israel at the time who hear this inspired song is something that is revealed fully at Jesus' birth and Jesus' baptism. For here is a glimpse of the Trinity. God in three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Accordingly, amongst other things, we must remember that our bridegroom, Christ, he is the Lord. He is God, the Son. And in case you think, you think I'm taking this psalm too far, well, we know that's the right application because that is what the writer of Hebrews does with Psalm 45, verse 6. In Hebrews chapter 4, the writer quotes this very verse to make the point that, that, that Jesus is more than just a lover, more than just a leader. He's better than anything that has gone before. He is the very Son of God. Which obviously has to be the case, given the gospel record that we have. Because Jesus not only did things that, that only God can do, but Jesus said that he was God. Such that you cannot, you cannot know Jesus 
as just a lover who speaks graciously or just a leader who, who saved you in some way without accepting that he is fully God. And so what is bizarre to Hindus and Buddhists and what is blasphemous to Jews and to Muslims and what is banned by Jehovah's Witnesses must be believed by those truly wedded to Christ. That miraculously, mysteriously, that we cannot get our little minds around it. God himself came down from heaven to earth at Christmas time to unite us to himself. Such that if we're Christians, if we believe in him, we find ourselves amazingly married to our maker. Loved by the Lord. That the covenant-keeping God of all history, who will never divorce us. What a staggering thought that lowly you and I might receive this enduring love from the Lord who has never broken a promise. And so much more briefly, what are you and I to do? Hopefully we stand astonished this morning and marvel at our marital position and we praise God. But what else is the bride of Christ, the church, to do? Well, in the rest of Psalm 45, helpfully we're told, for in verse 10, the psalmist pivots from descriptions of the great bridegroom and to the directions to the grateful bride. It's quite foreign to our modern uh, Western mindset to not have the bride as the very center of attention and to have her listen to a lecture about what she should do in marriage. But nevertheless, that's what's going on here. For the psalmist says, listen up, privileged young lady." Given the amazing husband that you'll have, listen. Look at verse 10. Hear, he says, O daughter, and consider, and incline your ears. And, and so what directions does he give her? Well, there are three, and the first is this. Leave all for your Lord. Leave all for your Lord. If you look down with me to the rest of verse 10. Forget your people and your father's house, and the king will desire your beauty. Since he is your Lord, bow to him. 42 years ago, wedding preparations were being made in my country for the greatest royal marriage of all time. For this was no a Christmas prince, the royal wedding. This was the real deal fairy tale. That The wedding was going to be watched by 750 million people, uh, nevertheless, just like the Netflix movie, behind the scenes, uh, amid all the preparations, lay a big disagreement between the traditional prince and the progressive princess. Lady Diana Spencer would still marry Prince Charles, now King Charles, but not without a significant change to her vows. Diana would promise to love and to comfort Charles, but she was absolutely determined to omit the line, obey him. For while it was the Windsor way, and a line that a Christian queen had insisted upon, it was just not the Spencer way. Diana was happy to declare publicly her love for Charles, but never really wanted to surrender her old life, never really wanted to submit to her husband and her king. And looking back over the tragedy of her marriage, there is every reason why that's understandable. For Charles was nothing like the king of Psalm 45. Charles was nothing like Jesus to Diana. 
He did not die to himself. He did not love her sacrificially. Indeed, he smashed God's picture of marriage that we read about earlier from Ephesians 5. But you know, that did not make Dinah's refusal to submit to Charles and her desire to stay an independent Lady Spencer right for God's good design in marriage. It is not only a husband who lovingly lays down everything for his wife, who lets go of old responsibilities to his old family, but also God's good design for marriage as a wife who submits to her husband's loving lead and who lets go of old obligations to past family ways. For as Jesus himself defined marriage, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. The responsibility of the husband is to leave all for his lover. The responsibility of the wife is to let go all for her Lord. And that's exactly what the psalmist calls the bride here too. Can you see? Forget your people, forget your father's house and bow to the one who loves you and leads you and the one who is your Lord. For in this way, a a Christian husband and a Christian wife get the great privilege of picturing the gospel itself. That's why marriage is really important to Christians. That's why Christians make a really big deal about marriage. I don't know if you've noticed that about who can be married to who, and about roles within marriage. It has nothing to do with European tradition, but everything to do with painting the picture of the servant-hearted, loving Lord Jesus and his happily yielding church. And maybe those of us who are married here need to reflect upon how well we are painting this gospel picture in our own marriage, in the roles that we've been given by God. But if our temporary earthly marriage merely pictures the eternal heavenly marriage, then that's not the ultimate application, is it? Now, if we're Christians, if we are Christ's bride, we must see here that that loving uh, our bridegroom calls us to leave all because he's Lord. Very bluntly put, we cannot have Jesus as our lover unless we leave all for Jesus our Lord. Unless we're willing to, to, to leave home, to leave family for him, to leave this world behind for the sake of his kingdom. Because that is what Jesus boldly called people to do. Listen to Luke chapter 9. Someone said to Jesus, Lord, I'll follow you wherever you go. And Jesus warned, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another he said, follow me. But the man said, Lord, let me first go and and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. As for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said to Jesus, I will follow you, Lord. But first... Let me say farewell to those in my home. And Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back at it is fit for the kingdom of God. Can you see the radicalness of marriage to Jesus? What accepting his marriage proposal means for us. For in the same way that the bride cannot be driven off to her new and happy home unless she actually leaves her parents and her old family home and goes to church to make those those public vows to her groom. 
So our marriage to Christ, we cannot be driven off to heaven by the Lord Jesus unless we actually say that we're going to leave this world and the people of it and go to church and make that public commitment initially through our baptism, declaring publicly to the whole world that this is now not our home and that Jesus is our Lord and that we want to proclaim his coming kingdom and its rule. And friends, those vows, they're costly today, aren't they? They're costly. Children here. That's why you're to count the cost of accepting Jesus' marriage proposal. That's why you're to think carefully about becoming a Christian in the same way that you should think carefully about who you consider getting married to. For often we will feel the tug of old family ways when, when having Jesus as Lord means hardship. We live in a time when, it, when it's hard to stand with, with Jesus and what he says on, on marriage and, and sexuality and the evils of, a, of abortion and racism. We live in a time where Jesus' idea that only those who have him as Lord will be in heaven. We live in a time that that, that ensures that, that some parents and some siblings and some children will, will cancel us or cut us off. And friends, honestly, it looks as though these cultural pressures are only going to increase in years to come. Indeed, some of you here already know that. Some of you here have suffered the painful consequences of standing with Jesus, your wonderful groom, against your own family and friends and colleagues and neighbors. Those who don't mind the fact that you found a savior, but really hate the fact that Jesus is now your Lord and that you have renounced what you grew up believing. Some here have literally known, verse 10, to forget your people and your father's house. So let me encourage you. Let me encourage you, my friends, that though that is very painful now, you will think nothing of the consequences of that new allegiance to your beloved Lord when he bursts out of heaven for that final wedding day and all will bow. And he carries you to that wedding supper of the Lamb where you will stand with him in glory forever. And so keep going. Keep faithfully standing by your groom, your Lord. Keep living for his kingdom, which is to come. For amazingly, verse 11. Can you see the motivation there? Your king will find you all the more beautiful as you do. Direction number one, leave all for your Lord. But not only that, but direction two, lead in loveliness. Lead in loveliness. Between you verses 11 and 12, in the wedding day events that the psalmist paints, we move from the scene where the bride leaves her, her family home to the scene where she's about to walk the aisle. And so in verse 12, the people of Tyre seek favor with gifts. We kind of maybe imagine them waving at the princess as the bridal car approaches the church and the rich wedding gifts are dropped off as the princess waits in her bridal chamber, verse 13. Then, verse 14, the time comes. The organ pipes up, the special music plays, and she is led to her beloved king and groom. And yet, in this ancient Near Eastern wedding, there is a difference to our modern weddings again. For she is not led, but she leads out. 
She steps forward and she, and she leads down the aisle, not in white, but in robes made of gold, verse 13, and in many colorful robes, verse 14, and she leads the way in a bold loveliness, verse 14, with all her bridesmaids behind her, following her along. And verse 15, with joy and gladness, they are led along as they too enter the palace of the king. Now, there's a danger in stretching the application too far here. But I do think we can infer the appropriateness here of wanting to be lovely to Jesus, our groom. That the rightness of leading others to in that loveliness. And so, friends, as we dwell upon that, we must remember that Christ desires not only in a loyal kind of standing beside him, It's not only seen in our commitment to his ways when others will side against our Lord Jesus, but also it is seen by adorning ourselves in a loveliness for him in living lives that are deeply attractive to him. Yes, we we cannot make ourselves lovely independent of Jesus. Our wedding day robes are Christ's righteous robes and they are given to us by him. We can't earn that wedding gown, but the Bible consistently says, put it on, put it on now. And not only that, but wear that wedding gown of loveliness in a way that that leads other people into the king's palace. And friends, I love, I love how many of you lead me in that loveliness. I love how Bobby Reed wears the lovely robes of service in our church. I love how Lynn Henderson wears a lovely kindness. I love how Carter Stalling wears a Jesus-like humility. I love how my wife leads us in delightful prayerfulness. What lovely robes of godliness might you pick out to wear this week that you might lead others in for the delight of your king? Leave all for your Lord. Lead in loveliness. And very finally as we close, direction three, look to produce a lineage. Look to produce a lineage. In our last two verses, the psalm addresses the king again. But in many ways, his his eyes are kind of on the bride still. For as the movie credits roll, he looks ahead to the movie sequel. He looks past the, the, the Christmas prince, the royal wedding movie, and to the next one, the Christmas prince, the royal baby. For the ultimate result of this wedding is the hope of a royal lineage. It is the hope of of little princes running around the palace. Can you see that in verse 16? Sons that will bear the royal family name so that verse 17, the king might be remembered throughout all generations and so all the nations will praise him. Well, our time is gone. So I'll make this very brief. But the final purpose of our marriage to the Lord Jesus is that we may produce children in the faith. We are to leave everything for our Lord, and we are to be lovely to him, being godly in life, and we're to lead others in that loveliness. But also, we're to pray for the gift of uh, lineage, in a sense, for spiritual sons and spiritual daughters in the faith, for the outworking of our love for the Lord is to result in people who are born of the Spirit, People who become children of God through our proclamation to the ends of the earth. Now, just like in earthly marriage, we don't know if the Lord will give us such children. We're not responsible for the outcome. Only God is the giver of life. 
But perhaps we can attempt to put verse 17 into practice this very week by simply inviting our unbelieving friends and neighbors and colleagues to our carol service next week. I want to take a couple of flyers on your way out and prayerfully consider who you might invite next Sunday evening. For having been given to the king in marriage, our final marital task is to sing for joy to the world, to tell the whole earth that the Lord has come and that all must and can receive him as king, that all heaven and nature may sing. We're going to do that right now. But first, let's pray. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we praise you for your very Son, the one who has spoken such gracious words to us, the one who has led us to your throne room despite our sin, who has defeated all our enemies so that we may be married to you eternally. Father, we thank you that he is Lord and God. And so, Father, we pray that we might treat him as such. Father, where we have stood against our husband and stood with our old family ties, Lord, forgive us. Help us to live for him as Lord this week. And Father, help us to be a delight to your son. We still wrestle with sin and yet we've been given garments of his righteousness. Father, help us by your spirit to put them on, to lead out in our church in great loveliness, to lead others in that loveliness. And we pray too that you might give us the great joy in giving us children through our proclamation in this city. And so help us to sing of joy to the world at the King's coming. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.